0: The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, March 17th, 2020. From Slate It's the Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Voting in three states today Illinois, Florida, and Arizona could, should offer big wins for Joe Biden, pushing Bernie Sanders' odds of winning the nomination from highly unlikely to act of God. Of course in normal times, act of God is a more rarefied category than highly unlikely. These are not those times. Ohio, which was to have been voting, will not be, and that is a last minute decision. Why are Ohioans more susceptible to the effects of coronavirus with in person voting than Arizonans, Floridians, or Illinoisans? Yes, that is the demonym for people from Illinois. And the answer is. Ohioans are not more susceptible, it's just that Governor Mike DeWine is more nervous about them gathering together in groups and voting, and there is a logic to that. However, the way the vote was canceled does not sit well with many Ohioans, many fans of elections, and in fact, one Ohio poll worker, his name is Noah Alloy, he is a GIST listener, and he emailed me, about what he went through within the last 24 hours. Listen to this. At 7.13 p.m., this was yesterday, I got a text from FCBOE, that's the Franklin County Board of Election, confirming that voting would not go ahead the next morning, this morning. Then at 9.02, I got another text informing me that the governor's request had been denied and to prepare to report. Then at 9.17, after refreshing Dispatch.com, Columbus Dispatch, the newspaper, several times, I saw that the governor was saying the election would not go ahead. A few minutes later, the story updated to clarify that the governor and secretary of state were not saying either way at that time. Finally, at 1028, the dispatch reported that the health director was closing the polls on emergency grounds. A text to that effect came from the board of elections at 1059 p.m. after I'd finally fallen asleep. If I hadn't stayed up refreshing the news, Noah writes, I would have gone to sleep expecting to report to work at 530 a.m., This was my experience as someone with easy access to information. One of my fellow poll workers is not that connected, does not have a smartphone, does not have internet at home. Now I, this is Mike talking, I will interject to say that that is a poll worker, perhaps a less than informed poll worker among the universe of poll workers, but think about how less informed and even median informed voter would be. If this process had wound up after all the back and forths and the health commissioner and the courts, and it had wound up, okay, voting is going ahead, that, that would have been a disaster. Turnout would have been extremely depressed, tremendously depressed. Even the late contemplation, just the mere contemplation of this decision, public contemplation, presented a huge problem. But then again, it would be irresponsible not to at least contemplate halting voting whatsoever. And that, in fact, will be the topic of today's interview. After that, we'll do a spiel where we discuss Donald Trump on his best day. It's still a pretty bad day. But first, Rick Hassan, elections expert and law professor on the Buckeye ballot box back and forth. Up next. With all the states voting today, Arizona, Illinois, Florida, and Ohio await Ohio is not voting. Then it was, then it wasn't. The governor and a judge or a panel of judges went back and forth. I got a message from an Ohio polls worker who had to wait until 530 this morning to get final word, but there will not be voting in Ohio. And this was done on the auspices of the governor and his commissioner of health. Is this good? Is this right? Is this legal? Joining me now is Rick Hassan. He is the author of Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. He is perhaps, I don't know, America's leading election law and campaign finance expert, a professor at the Irvine School of Law in Ir- at the University of California. Hello, Rick. Thanks for joining me.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: So normally with these, I read your blog and normally I have a feeling where this is going to go, which is usually less voting, bad, more voting, good, more open voting, easier voting, access to voting, good. But I thought these were special circumstances. So I was wondering where you would come down. Where do you come down?
1: Well, I certainly think that um, if health officials believe that it's not safe for people to be going out to the polling places to vote, then that's a good reason to delay the election or switch to a different means of electing, like using mail ballots. But you've got to comply with the rules. And, you know, as early as, or I say as late as Monday, Ohio's governor, uh, DeWine, was saying that he didn't think he had the unilateral authority to cancel the election. So if they kind of manufactured a lawsuit to go to court to try to get a judge to order it. The judge refused. And then he went ahead and basically canceled the election anyway. And I think that's really problematic. It's not the way we want to do things. And it's a bad sign for what could happen in November.
0: Was it wrong for him to try to go to the legal route if the judges, and by the way, his son is actually, he recused himself, but would have been one of the judges hearing this case. And I believe only four of the justices uh, participated in the decision. But was it somehow improper for him to use that legal route? If he got the out from the justices, wouldn't that have been an okay outcome?
1: Yeah. So just to explain a little bit of what's going on legally in Ohio, as I understand it, there were a couple of different lawsuits. Uh, One was filed directly with the Ohio Supreme Court. And as far as I know, that one is still pending. Uh, But this other one was brought before a trial judge. And uh, it seems like it was a manufactured suit, you know, try sue me so I can be ordered not to run the election. I think that's that's fine. That's perfectly fine. Another way to go is to have gone to the legislature to change the rules, to change the date for the primary. That I think would have been fine too. And so, what you were referring to in terms of uh, the four justices that participated, this was an appeal of that uh, earlier order when the judge said, uh, No, uh, the election is still going to go forward because I'm worried about disenfranchising people by making this change at the last minute. Um, Two of the judges, two of the justices on the Supreme Court recused themselves because they're running in the election. And one was, as you mentioned, the governor's son. So, uh, you know, not ideal circumstances uh, to be making a, a legal decision. The right way to go would have been for the governor over the weekend to realize, hey, I've got the potential of an emergency on my hands I'm going to go to the legislature on an emergency basis and ask them to give me the authority to move the election if necessary. If that would have happened, I think everybody would have been on board. Um, It's just, if you start taking this power into your hands by closing polling places, I mean, what happens if Trump orders polling places closed in November? It's just not the way you want to do things because democracy depends on having elections even under difficult circumstances.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But to push back on a couple things, well, maybe to play devil's advocate, going to the legislature might have been a fine uh, decision, but there is no legislature. It's not in session. The legislators are working from home, and perhaps you could have said, well, perhaps this should have been foreseen. And many people in Ohio and Columbus are saying the legislators need to perhaps violate this rule of gatherings and come back and do their job. But there is no right now legislature to go go to.
1: Well, you know, as I said, he could have foreseen last week that this was a potential problem. He could have asked for the legislature to come back into emergency session. I mean, there are things that he could have done procedurally, I think, thinking ahead. You know, one of the messages in my book, Election Meltdown, which was obviously written before this coronavirus uh, problem, is that so many states don't have plan B's in place for an emergency. You know, I wrote about what if there's a cyber attack on a... A city in a swing state, you know, like Detroit or Milwaukee. And, and lots of states don't have emergency rules in place. And this just shows you why we need to have them in place. And we can't cut corners when it comes to democracy. We've got to follow the rules or else people are not going to accept the results as legitimate. Much lower stakes here, when we're talking about a primary that can be moved, especially a primary where the Democratic contest is essentially done, if we're thinking about this on the national level. But you know, if we're talking about something like uh, the the general election, you know, this would be you know, it just really tearing people apart and, and really a yeah. bad precedent it is
0: but i i think there are some tensions because we're weighing i can't argue that it's not a bad precedent and if a president with ill intent or anyone else tries to take this obviously in extremist circumstance and use it as a loophole and gain electoral or political advantage that's bad and that's a real potential on the other hand i mean you are right he could have and should have foreseen this but if you remember back to friday there, things have changed so much from day to day. The number of people that the CDC was recommending be limited in gatherings as at uh, 50 was not even issued over the weekend. And now there's a recommendation of 10. So as different realizations or recommendations come into play, it is the governor's job to react. And I don't know if he could go back and say, I wish we or maybe he is saying, I wish we have done it differently. But this is the choice upon us now. I mean, what should he have done?
1: Well, you know, you could look at what's happening in Italy and realize they're, you know, a few weeks ahead of us in all of this or, you know, look in other countries. I, I, I don't think uh, I want to be so easy in letting the governor off the hook. I think all states need to be considering these things. And you did have other governors over a week ago decide that they needed to postpone their primaries and did so following legal processes. So, you know, I'm I'm not willing to cut him some slack. This was not, you know, all of a sudden there's this emergency that no one could have foreseen. I think this was foreseeable enough that he could have asked for emergency powers uh, to do this if necessary while things were still in place. In any case... Nothing stops him now from asking the legislature on an emergency basis to try to give him this authority. Uh, You know, uh, it's a little bit backwards in timing, but I still think it's important for the rule of law.
0: Well... Something stops him. There's no legislature there. They're
1: not in session. Well, but he can call an emergency session. This is one of the powers that the governor has to do.
0: Yeah, but they're not. I mean, they're literally working from home and scattered throughout the state. Um, It seems like much of the criticism is apt, which is that there are things he could have done that didn't do. But let's say he even realized that and uh, admits to himself fault. Would you have said You have to go ahead with the election, even despite your pressing concerns about coronavirus. Three other states did. He made the opposite decision. I don't, it seems to me that I can't argue with you in terms of what this might mean in terms of democracy, what this might mean in terms of voting, but what it does mean in terms of health is another very pressing consideration.
1: Absolutely. And, And as I said, you know, I think, I think he is setting a terrible precedent In the other states, they decided to go ahead with voting. They could have imposed different procedures at voting places, for example, requiring that people stand six feet apart in lines. You know, I'm not a a health expert, so I don't know exactly how uh, it should be done. But if they're able to do it in three other states, then I think that shows that it's doable, unless there's some evidence that the situation in Ohio is more dire than it is in other places. But I think we're really playing with fire when we're giving people the authority or saying that people can do this even if they lack the authority in um, taking away people's ability to vote. And, and just just to underline the point I made earlier, it's not as dire as it would be if we couldn't hold the election later. But now we're going to hold the election later and under some rules that are maybe questionable, including treating later ballots as provisional ballots, which means, you know, they could be challenged, you know, so there. uh there's a lot in the details, which I'm still digging into, that, uh, that are troubling too. So why is it a precedent, though?
0: Because the court precedent is you can't do it. Now, he defied the court, but why would a future court look back at this precedent and say something other than you can't
1: do it? So, uh, yeah, I guess I have to explain a little bit more about the court decision. So the court was basically a, a being asked by private plaintiffs uh, hey, I think you need to postpone the election because otherwise my constitutional rights would be violated. And the court said, no, the election can go forward. So it wasn't, the, the, the question was before the court was not, does the governor have the authority unilaterally to cancel the election? That was not the legal question that the court was considering. It was whether the court on its own should have canceled the election. Uh, so so there's not a precedent saying the governor can't do this. But the governor himself had said at a press conference that he couldn't unilaterally cancel the election. And yet he did it through the back door, not by issuing a proclamation saying the election is canceled, but by first having the, uh, you know, the health officers say polling places are closed and then having the Secretary of State saying, OK, well, now that the polling places are closed, here's what we're doing to reschedule. And I, as I understand it, the Secretary of State didn't have the authority to do that either. Now, it was necessary to do that to preserve people's constitutional rights. It would have been worse to say, well, the election is now canceled and we're going to go ahead with whatever votes have been cast uh, early and absentee. It's just, it's a bad precedent. And rather than, you know, going back and forth on whether or not he did the right thing or not, we can use it as a learning opportunity that we need to have procedures in place so that this never happens again where, uh, you know, we can't foresee it. Now we can foresee it. And now we know that we need to have a plan B in place for when this happens the next time.
0: Right. The idea of uh, planning for contingencies is that so you don't get handcuffed by, well, we didn't foresee it. Yes, that's the point. That's why we have contingencies. Like, we don't know if it's going to be a virus pandemic or, as you say, a computer attack or whatever, something we haven't thought of. Have a contingency. Have a contingency for the thing you couldn't foresee so you don't have the excuse of, well, we didn't foresee it.
1: And let me say that in the context of an election, this is especially important because if you try to make changes in election rules just before an election or or after an election has taken place, it's going to happen when everybody knows how this could help one party or another. And it's much better to make the decisions in the, you know, behind the veil of ignorance well in advance of any kind of emergency. So that way, you know, you don't know who's going to benefit or who's going to be hurt uh, by something like this. So it's been a message I've been, you know, putting out for two decades, which is you need to set the rules in advance, including the rules for emergencies, because uh, there's going to be stuff you're not going to be able to foresee. And we want to do this as fairly as possible and preserve our democratic values along with everything else. Is there a way
0: for any of the actors here or future actors to acknowledge the specialness of this circumstance and therefore limit the precedent. Either, I don't know, the court could have done, I don't know if it could have done a Bush v. Gore thing and say this is for one time only. Maybe the governor, maybe you have an idea of what the governor could do to address that this isn't a precedent going forward. Or a future court could just look at this and say, all right, huge asterisk. I don't know. Yes, I think I believe asterisk is a Latin term, but I don't know if that's a legal term.
1: So, you know, it's not a precedent in the sense that, again, there's no court ruling that says the governor can go ahead unilaterally and cancel the election, despite the fact that he does not have legal authority under the state uh, constitution or state statutes to do it. It's a political precedent. It's a bad political precedent, but it it doesn't bind anybody. No one's going to look at this and say, well, you know, the governor did it in Ohio. Therefore, I'm bound to give uh, another governor the ability to do this. So it's only pressed in the sense that it shows that here's a political actor who canceled an election or who postponed an election and got away with it. That's bad. But, it, but it's not the same as a legal precedent that, that, that other courts or other actors would have to follow. But as I mentioned at the top, it does make me worry, you know, what if Trump's Surgeon General comes out November 1st and says, you know, we're closing everything down. We've got another flare up of coronavirus. Everybody needs to stay home. That's not canceling the election, but that would severely depress turnout, you know, disenfranchise potentially millions of people. Then what? What's our plan
2: B?
0: Rick Hassan is an American legal scholar who is the author of Election Meltdown, and he teaches at the University of California Irvine School of Law. You could also hear him talk to Dahlia Lithwick on the Amicus podcast frequently. He is my favorite guest on that podcast. Thank you, Rick.
1: Thank you so much.
3: monarchmoney.com slash podcast.
0: And now the spiel. Speaking from the White House, flanked by his medical and political advisors, President Trump updated the nation on how preparations against the COVID-19 virus were proceeding. Much of the press conference was informative, constructive, rooted in fact. The medical experts, Anthony Fauci, Deborah Bix, Admiral Brett Girois, <laughs> that's how he pronounced it, brought facts and expertise. It went pretty well. Afterward, CNN's
3: Dana Bash said this. This was remarkable from the president of the United States. This is a nonpartisan. This is um, an important thing to note uh, and to applaud from an American standpoint, from from a human standpoint. He is... um, being the kind of leader that people need, at least in tone, today and yesterday, right. in tone that people need and want and yearn for in times of crisis and uncertainty. So we.
0: Well, perhaps they or she yearn for it so much that she wishes that leadership into being. For as much as I praised Trump and said pretty well and that it was mostly rooted in facts and. I wanted to be fair to the president. I do. I wasn't saying anything over the top or inaccurate. There was a lot in this press conference that was sub presidential, that was not helpful, that was nasty, churlish, and not appropriate for the moment. That said, it was a much, much better performance than he has given before. It is true. Substantively, more information than usual. But let's not will a fiction into fact. Because at this press conference that Abash praised for leadership, the president did take time to falsely claim that the U.S. was well equipped with respirators, and then he landed, as is his wont on a familiar whipping boy.
4: We've ordered uh, massive numbers of uh, ventilators. We have, by any normal standards, we have a lot of respirators, uh, ventilators. We have tremendous amounts of equipment, but compared to what we're talking about here, this has never been done before. Uh, And yesterday I gave the governors the right to go order directly if they want, if they feel they can do it faster than going through the federal uh, government. Now, we've knocked out all of the bureaucracy. It's very direct, but it's still always faster to order directly. And I gave them that was totally misinterpreted by The New York Times on purpose, unfortunately. But
0: it was not the only time he sought to undermine the credibility of our country's leading news outlet in this time when trust is the most vital of qualities. Here he was asked about his tweet from earlier today, describing Gretchen Whitmer
4: as a failing Michigan governor. I watched her on television. She said something that was false, and therefore I did do that. And I will continue to do that. If they're not going to play fair, because, you know, they have the media on their side, I don't. I just have me. And if they're not going to play fair, I'm going to do that. Uh, if they are going to play fair, there's going to be nobody, there's going to be nobody better than Donald Trump in terms of uh, bipartisanship. But if if they're going to say things that are false, like the story that was written yesterday, a lot of people, I don't know, somebody, uh, I think I know who, but they taped the conference call that I had with the governors. It was a good call. It was fine. I assume somebody's going to tape it. They handed it to various people, and one of them was the New York Times, and the New York Times chose to write Uh, totally inaccurately about it. It was a disgraceful thing. It was bad journalism, but, you know, they do a lot of bad journalism. Uh, And let's remember what Dana Bash
0: said. Non sequitur, though it may have been, she began her remarks by using the words, this is a nonpartisan. This was an important thing to note and applaud from an American standpoint. From the standpoint of nonpartisan, let us hear the president when asked his opinion of the party other
4: than his own. I watched the debate, not too exciting, but what they said about me, and we've done a great job. When you talk about not, not being bipartisan, uh, what they said about me, and if you look at uh, swine flu, the, uh, the whole thing, and I guess it was 2009, and uh, what they did and the mistakes they've made, uh, they were terrible. They were horrific mistakes. 17,000 people died. And I'll be honest, uh, they shouldn't be criticizing because we've done a fantastic job. The only thing we haven't done well is to get good press. Uh, we've done a fantastic job, but it hasn't been appreciated. Even the... the president
0: didn't elevate himself above the critics. He didn't say, now is not the time for me not to take the bait. He took the bait and he bit back. He can still be engaged. He can still be easily enraged. He was still petty, though not as petty as he sometimes is. He was still thin skinned, perhaps not tracing paper thin, but a hardier letter stock worth of thinness. I don't know if Danabash, like many of us, is so whipsawed and waylaid by fast moving and truly upsetting events that she is latching onto a rickety dock and calling it a safe harbor, finding the good in the president's tone, not being as bad as it could be and has been, finding that his temper and vindictiveness has been dialed down to merely the high end of most human experience. Wuhan virus as Stockholm syndrome. It is not useful to howl at every bit of presidential nastiness to call everything he says, no matter how stupid a horror that will deflate the institution. But it's still okay to note that he is diminishing the office with so many of his utterances, a little bit, bit by bit. To pretend these constant erosions of the office in a time of need don't occur just because we need them or wish they didn't occur, that will either make viewers seem like they're crazy or indicate that the speaker has maybe gone a little mad. Look, maybe there's something else going on here. In the press conference today, Donald Trump actually had something nice to say about a usual sparring partner, Andrew Cuomo of New York. So let's go back to Cuomo's press conference yesterday when he said this of President Trump.
2: I made this suggestion to the vice president. I made it to the president. Uh, I often tell you when um, I am uh, unhappy with the federal response to this state, the uh, fairness dictates that, uh, kudos where kudos are due. And here the vice president and the president responded very quickly. Uh, so I want to thank them for that. Next to
0: Cuomo, as he was speaking, was this graphic, great mobilization. And then it was a bullet point that said, thank you, vice president Pence and president Trump. President Trump saw that he apparently appreciated it because in today's presidential press conference, he said this, I'm going
4: to work with uh, Governor Cuomo. I'm going to work with uh, a number of the governors. Governor Newsom has been very generous in his, uh, in his words, and I'm being generous to him, too. We're- Both Cuomo and Trump use their words to note that the other used
0: their words well, and this verbal detente extended to Cuomo's press
2: conference today. I put my hand out in partnership. I want to work together 100%. Uh, I need your help, I want your help, uh, and New Yorkers will do everything they can to be good partners with the federal government. I think the president was 100% sincere in saying that he wanted to work together uh, in partnership in a spirit of cooperation. I can tell you the actions he has taken, evidence that uh, his team has been on it. I know okay.
0: So in a more perfect world, I guess so imperfect as to be beset by coronavirus, but perfect enough that our leaders are adults, in a more perfect world, we could dispense with the courtliness and the drawing attention to the fact that we're not acting childishly. But I'll take it. I'll take it. The media, on the other hand, shouldn't really be in the role to have to flatter a minimally competent performance with high praise. And indeed, we shouldn't have to brush off the counterproductive flaws of a leader in order to see only the good, because we wish, oh, how we wish, that there only was good, or so much more good. I don't know if it was done as strategy, Uh, a strategy of let's look for the best in people and they'll become the best or a strategy of flattery so the president stops berating all of us in this time of crisis or just a very human trait of selective perception. You know, as a parent, it's sometimes a wise move not to punish the child for every single misstep if you're sensing some progress along the way. Listen to this analogy. It's like I'm talking about potty training. I'm talking about the presidency. And, you know, covering the president in good times in good times requires vigilance. In these times, times of pandemic, vigilance is tested and strained every second of every day. We don't have extra reserves to spare. I'm not advocating an overly harsh assessment. Our watchdogs shouldn't actually lose credibility if they dare suggest the president is improving, was a little better than yesterday. We could say that. That's fine. But that can't spring from a hope that he'll be better tomorrow. That is not the job of the watchdog. And anyway, Presidential competence through praise is an irrational strategy. It's not going to happen. No matter how much we wish that he would somehow become the leader we need, not the leader he is. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the GIST associate producer. She has announced in a teary goodbye to New England fans that she will be leaving them for Tampa and not eating strawberries. Daniel Schrader is the producer of The GIST he finds himself delayed in Dayton, curbed in Cleveland, alas, adjourned in Akron. The gist. Hey, what if I want to hunker up? What then? You gonna tell me how I handle my hunkering? um pruh da du pruh and thanks for listening.